0: Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature, mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Kavanaugh, and we are here to explore the themes of mind, body, and soil together. Sometimes I think that these podcasts come for me at exactly the right time, and I've really started to lean into the idea that each interview lands exactly when it's supposed to, and and sometimes it's hard to get all of these interviews lined up to find two people's schedules and and a space where it makes sense. When I recorded this interview with Brett Ender, I was about three weeks into an autoimmune flare-up that I thought I had in full remission. This is not something I have talked a lot about on the podcast, and there's a reason why. And one of those reasons is that I do not view myself as a warrior of chronic illness, and I think you'll see that Brett doesn't either, that I don't find this to be the only defining characteristic of who I am, and I don't want my illness to be first and foremost about me. And... I feel the same way about a lot of diagnoses that I've received in the past, and so I haven't really discussed it, and I think that there's this other part of me that feels that, you know, I'm in I'm in the health and wellness space, I've done a lot of work, I've healed a lot of things, and I have this underlying condition that I may not ever heal. It is an autoimmune condition, it might be in remission, and we talk about this nuance between the words cure and heal in today's episode that... I think are it's a really important nuance, and so, at the end of this podcast, I had to take a really big, hard look at what was going on in my body and in my life. So, I have chronic autoimmune atrophic gastritis which is sometimes referred to as pernicious anemia and what it is it's, it's it's an autoimmune destruction of the parietal cells inside of the stomach mucosa now our parietal cells are pretty cool cats they're responsible not just for making hydrochloric acid that allows us to digest all of our food but also responsible for the production of intrinsic factor which allows us to absorb B12 from our food I think I went undiagnosed with this for many years. In fact, I think that this has been present with me since childhood. And by the time I found it, there was a lot of synchronicity. Here I was, unable to absorb B12 or having a diminished capacity to absorb B12 because it's likely I still have some functioning parietal cells in my body. And I was attracted to meat and eating lots of meat and eating lots of organ meat, which is rich in what? It's rich in B12. I think that my body was seeking out a volume of what I needed in order to heal. However, when I was diagnosed, I decided that I wanted to try intramuscular B12 shots, which bypasses the oral, which is sometimes called parenteral absorption and allows B12 to go straight into the body. Now, those of you that have listened to this podcast must know I am not a a fan of exogenous substances. And this is an exogenous substance. And it it is a chemical. It has a weird dye in it. I have some reservations about it. And it changed my life. I went from being able to be awake and moving around for two, three hours of the day to leading a pretty full life. However, my stomach pain did not go away. I have since I was a little kid had really deep stomach pain and kind of chased the dragon on this one, on what it could possibly be. And then in January, I had a, hmm, not ready to discuss this on the podcast, I had a spiritual experience that completely shifted the pain. It disappeared overnight and it was gone for the last nine months. And then sometime in late August, early September, the pain started to creep back. And then it started to get really, really bad. And that's tough, right? It's tough to be in pain. It's tough to be a person in pain. It's tough to be in a relationship as a person that's in pain. I noticed just just this past day, in fact, that it has It changes me into a crotchety person at times, and that's not how I want to relate to the world, and it's certainly not how I want to relate to my husband, who carries a lot when I'm in pain and is just the most supportive and amazing king possible in this situation. But as I spoke with Brett about this, I was inspired to go back to healing and inspired also to take a look at why this might have happened. And there were two impetuses. And why why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you all of this because I think it's good to have reflections of what it means to heal from other people in our lives. If this helps one person, then it was worth me sharing my short story about this. So there were two impetuses for this relapse, flare-up, whatever we want to call it. And one was stress. Stress. Now, I really want to unpack this because while there's certainly some stressors in my life right now that are not positive, a lot of it is actually really good stress. I get so wound up, so excited about this podcast and my guests that I pour a lot of energy and desire and anxiety and joy into this, and my delicate nervous system doesn't know how to tease out the fact that that is good stress. It just views it as stress. Well, good for me to know, good for me to look at. And the other news in this front is I'm not stopping the podcast. I'm not slowing down either. I'm passionate about doing this and I'm passionate about figuring out a way that I can continue to sustain this with where my body is at. And so I just want to share that sometimes a delicate nervous system that was maybe wired a little funny in childhood isn't necessarily going to be able to distinguish between good stressors and bad stressors. And that's just a call for me to begin to cultivate and return to some practices that I need, whether that is quiet meditation time in the morning or breath work or increased sauna. And then the second aspect of this is that over the summer I decided I wanted to expand my diet a little bit. I tend to eat a carnivore-ish diet with a few vegetables and fruits, mainly vegetables that are technically fruits like zucchini and squash. But I I ventured out of that a little bit as well and my body has not fared really fantastically. And so it's time for me to return to the basics and I'm excited to do that. There are some other things that I'm going to be implementing, but I'm only going to talk about them if I find some relief or value within that. And the reason I'm sharing this is because Brett is incredibly inspiring. I was really struck at how he articulates his journey and how this has also led him to meet and this is something I'm really interested in teasing out in some of these personal healing journeys, which is this space that we all have gathered, which is meat has the power to heal land and bodies. And that power is so awesome. I'm going to let Brett take it from here, but before we we fully finish this sort of long intro that has been very casual so i apologize for not planning it a little bit better but sometimes it's it's fun to go off the cuff The other thing I want to say about Brett and Harry, who you will hear on this podcast later, is that I think that the work they're doing with the Meat Mafia podcast is truly incredible. And if you are looking for another podcast to check out, a newsletter to subscribe to, these are two men that are really paving the way for inspiring a different way of living life and working through struggle and working to challenge and push yourself and elucidating their practices and their mindset in order to really help reach people. And I am just, I was inspired by Brett. I am inspired by these two men. And so I encourage you to check out their podcast. The Meat Mafia, and you can also find them on Substack, which I subscribe to their newsletter. I think it's fantastic. I often walk away feeling more inspired, more raring to go than I did before I read it. Hi. So it's so good to be here with you today. And I have just so enjoyed the friendship that we've built over the last couple of months. And I had, I was telling you this before, but I had a lot of fun preparing for this interview and diving into some previous interviews that you've done. And one of the biggest pieces of that, I'm just so heartened by the way that you talk about your health journey and all of the threads that that pulls together and that you have synthesized in that space. And so I wonder if we can just dive right in and start there, start with, your health journey and where that's brought you to today
1: totally well first of all kate thank you so much for having me we were saying how we ha- we had to do a little swap because we had you on our podcast which was an amazing conversation like genuinely one of the best conversations we've ever had and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we're very passionate about the same topics so Harrison and I were both just ecstatic to be able to, to come on your show separately, which is cool for us too, because we end up doing a lot of podcasts together, which is amazing because it really helps to tell our story with the meat mafia, but separately, I think it allows you to share a little bit of your own story. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, but I think for me, I think that my, my medical story is unfortunately starting to become a little bit more and more common as we become more indoctrinated into this Western dietary and nutritional system. So I think a lot of the way that I approached nutrition, particularly when I was younger, was I think I justified everything that I did because I was an athlete. So baseball was really the sport that I grew up playing. I ended up I think I ended up having about 25 division one scholarships out of high school. Um, yeah. And because of that, I justified everything that I did because I was in the weight room, I was training, I was burning a lot of calories. I was drinking pre-workout powders. I was drinking protein powders and not concerned with what I was eating at all. I was eating everything, whether it was like pizza, I remember having pop tarts before games, like just so much processed garbage. And the thing is, is that I had amazing parents. My mom's like an amazing Italian cook. She cooked meals for me every single night. But at the same time, I think my household definitely was in the category of like, you know, too much red meat and saturated fat is bad for you. We definitely ordered out food a lot. And it's like they did the best that they can, but they were just listening to the dietary guidelines of what they thought was healthy and acceptable. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And so everything really started to change for me in 2016. And the reason why I say that is I was going into my senior year. So I was about, I was 20, I had just turned 21 years old. I'm 28 now. And I was interning in New York city. So I'm from New Jersey. So I was living at home with my parents in New Jersey. So I would take the train in two hours each way. So it was about a four hour commute. And I started noticing at the, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, it's just a huge oh. commute. I just oh, get, it's, so, it's, a, it's, it's massive.
1: Yeah, it's like it's such a it's such a thing in Central Jersey. It's just like a pain in the butt because there's not really a better way to get in the city. Because Princeton is like you're kind of like nestled right in the middle of the state, but the train is like the best way to get in. But it was exciting though because it was the first time I'd ever really experienced New York on my own. And I just turned 21. So, you know, at that time, it's like I was living the typical college lifestyle where it was like I was working very hard at school. I was probably partying too hard as well, drinking too much alcohol, eating way too much fried food. It's like you get back to your dorm room at like midnight and then you're like, oh, let's go order a Domino's pizza. Right. And then on top of that, I'm very stressed out from baseball and I'm very stressed out from school. So it's kind of like the perfect triple threat of how to build inflammation in the body and become sick. So I, right. I didn't realize it at the time, but now looking back seven years later, it makes perfect sense as to why everything that happened to me happened to me. So June of 2016, I start commuting into the city and I'm starting, I started noticing that there was like a little bit of blood in my stool for the first time. And I think for anyone that's listening to this, you know, men in particular that this applies to, it's like, if you notice blood at all, if it persists for more than a few days, you should immediately go to a doctor, whether it's a GI, some type of general practitioner, do not let it sit because that's what I ended up doing. And so I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, oh, you know, I was a young 21 year old kid. I was like, oh, you know, it'll probably just subside on its own. I'm not going to think anything of it. So I, you know, I go through the summer you know, drinking, not eating well, not sleeping enough, commuting into the city. And I start noticing the symptoms are continuing to get worse and worse. There's more blood on my stool. And then also my urgency to go to the bathroom is heightened. So by the end of the summer, this is about two to three months later in August, I was literally going to the bathroom over 20 times a day. And there was just like straight, straight blood. Wow. And I know it sounds crazy because you're like, how did you not go get yourself checked in? It's like, clearly there's something very wrong. And I just, I don't know if it it was me being naive or me thinking that I was invincible, but I just didn't, or embarrassment. I just didn't say anything to my parents or my friends. I just, I was just was like, oh, it'll probably just go away on its own. And so by August, my stomach, my colon was so inflamed that I just couldn't process any food. Everything was just going right through me. So like I said, I was going to the bathroom about 20 times a day. I'd lost probably close to 30 pounds. Like I normally walk around. I would think at the time I was walking around at like, yeah, 180. And I was down to about 150. And it got so bad that I had gone from like, just going like my bowel movements had a ton of blood in them to then I couldn't keep any food down. I was throwing up blood. So at at that point I was like, all right, something is seriously wrong. I called my nurse because my, I think my doc, my GI was on vacation and she said, you need to go to the hospital immediately. So I took a cab from New York city into Princeton to the local hospital, got a colonoscopy and I got diagnosed with, uh, I was in a full blown flare up of ulcerative colitis and so for anyone that doesn't know what colitis is, colitis is uh, it's an incurable autoimmune disease where your large intestine, which is your colon, gets so inflamed that your body just really isn't able to process food. You basically get these bloody ulcers all over your colon, hence the blood in the stool. So what I was told is that because it's incurable, the best that they can do is they can put it into remission. They can't cure it. Um, So they gave me a cocktail of a steroid called prednisone. They gave me a medication called Lealda. And then the big hitter was that I was going to go on um, a biologic drug called Remicade, which I would get administered via an infusion every eight weeks. So, for those that don't know, Remicade is it costs anywhere from like fifty to sixty five thousand um, dollars per infusion. Every, per infusion, yes. So, luckily, I had you know my parents had really good insurance, so that you know it was all covered, but. I just can't imagine if you had a, you know, if you had Crohn's, colitis, IBS, and had to go on this medication and didn't have insurance, it would be impossible because I was I was personally costing the medical system four hundred thousand dollars a year. There's close to a million people with colitis, plus people with Crohn's, IBS, psoriasis, any other autoimmune disease that needs remicade to treat it. Like you can do the math on how much that's costing the medical system alone, which is crazy, isn't it?
0: It is. It's astronomical. I think our spending in our, our output in spending for for medical expenses in the United States is three point eight trillion, which dwarfs even military spending in the United States. And I think just doing that quick back of the nap- napkin math that you just did, it really illustrates just just how much we're spending to help people feel okay, not even better. Mm-hmm.
1: A hundred percent, and and look, and I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people that's like fully Western medicine. Like to be fair, my flare up was so bad that at that point that I needed some type of intervention to get me out of this chronically inflamed state. So the medication, 100, the the Remicade did its job, and so I start going on the Remicade. I'm told I need to be on these infusions the rest of my life. This is like going into my senior year of college, so 2016, 2017, and I still, even with the the colitis diagnosis. I still hadn't changed my diet. I just thought to myself, I want to enjoy my senior year. I want to play baseball, I want to still drink a little bit. I still want to eat what I want to eat. and very fortunately the I think the medication helped keep me out of inflammation, but I still did not feel as good as I possibly could have felt like I was still going to the bathroom a few times. Sorry, were you gonna say something?
0: Uh, I was curious if the doctors recommended any dietary intervention if there was an outline that they gave you for how to Help this ulcerative colitis.
1: Yeah, they're the only thing that they had mentioned is that they gave me the um, what is it called? It's it's like the brat diet when I was in the hospital in my like in that inflamed state. So they're they're telling you to to eat these like what are they called? It's like a low low residue diet or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's rice, it's bananas, it's applesauce, it's things like that. But I think that was the only piece of dietary advice when I actually got when I was inflamed, when I was out of the hospital, there really wasn't any talk about diet and lifestyle. Like they give you some pamphlets, which talks about like limiting alcohol and things like that. But I can't recall anyone really sitting me down and talking about, Hey, you know, maybe like therapeutic carbohydrate reduction would help your symptoms or there, there was really no talk of that.
0: Okay. And so then you, you carry on with the Remicade and with, and the way that you were eating prior to this
1: hundred percent. Yeah. And like, and like I say, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of friends that I have or people that we've connected with through the podcast talk about how, when they were in university, how like, that's really where a lot of their habits deteriorated and that's how they got sick. And it's so interesting how much money we spend to go to university. And it's like, I think it's honestly one of the most destructive experiences for your health that you could possibly have, because it's this culture of stress. It's this culture of binge drinking, casual sex, like all these things just compounded on top of each other. So it's, it's interesting to be out of that for an extended period of time and realize that it was definitely the lifestyle that I was living in college that, that I attribute to me really getting sick.
0: I was curious about that, what you attributed to what led to that, whether or not it was sort of chemical interventions that we've used from glyphosate and Roundup and herbicides and pesticides that are opening tight junctions, Mm -hmm. that we know open tight junctions in the gut lining, or just a, a lifetime of a standard American diet, which I also experienced in childhood. But you really feel that there was this component of the lifestyle that we glorify in college that really started it or sent it over the edge.
1: I think it probably started it and sent it over the edge. And the interesting thing with something like a Crohn's colitis IBS is that they don't exactly know what is the root cause, but they say that it's some combination of stress, genetics, diet. So like I was the perfect triple threat where it was like I was not eating well at all, I wasn't sleeping enough, I was way too stressed out with baseball in school and I still will, my stomach will still act up when I'm in a period of stress, which we can talk about. And then genetically, like I just have a family history of stomach issues. Like both my, like one of my grandmothers has pancolitis, the other one has IBS. So it's like kind of like the perfect storm of stuff for me to, to get diagnosed with UC. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's, I think it's interesting too, that we mark this transition in many ways from childhood or adolescence into adulthood with this period of complete abandonment and, and and just going into drinking heavily and partying and eating whatever. And I think it's an interesting that that has been normalized as the step that you take to enter into whatever adulthood means within this culture.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And right there, there were some positive benefits of it. You know, I made some of my best friends there. There were definitely amazing memories, and and I really don't regret anything. But it's like I'm just curious as as things progress, and you know, we evolve more into the internet and the access to information, and you see how crippled people are with debt. And like I've probably learned more on YouTube than I have, and I went to one of the best business schools in the country. So it will be very interesting to see like if our kids end up going to university down the road. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's been a really hot topic up with the student debt cancellation and just exactly what that means for how it doesn't overhaul the university system, which is a whole tangent that we could get into that we'll all oh, leave. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, So you go on Rumicade and you continue this diet. What happens within your health as you just continue sort of normal life with the addition of this pharmaceutical biologic agent?
1: Yeah, it was kind of it was it was really just stagnation. So I was I was fortunate uh, looking back. I'm fortunate that I didn't have another flare up because I started off really not drinking and trying to be mindful of the food I was putting in my body. But as the year progressed, I started to go back and back into my more and more back into my into those old habits. So there was no flare up, but I just felt like I was just kind of blah. Like I was probably going to the bathroom five times a day. So not incredibly concerning, but obviously not way more than, than what the average person should be going, especially when you've experienced like low carb carnivore and you realize what it feels like to not have an inflamed gut and have healthy bowel movements. But fortunately I didn't have a flare up. And then really my turning point was around like 2018, 2019. And the reason why I say that is because I was living, I would, I took a tech sales job in New York and I was living on my own for the first time. And I just, for whatever reason, I just made this switch where I felt like I was capable of doing a little bit more. I just felt like I really underachieved relative to my potential in college. So I started doing some long distance running. Um, and I'd never been a good long distance runner, but I was very therapeutic. It was almost like meditational. And so I would go on these runs and the runs started building up, started doing longer events. I started doing half marathons. I started doing marathons. And then I was very much influenced by my roommates in New York. I had a roommate who was kind of into like amateur bodybuilding type stuff. And as a result of that, he cooked a lot of his own meals. And he was saying like, look, if you want to put on more muscle and achieve some of these goals that you have, you know, you need to start cooking meals. So he taught me how to make very simple dishes, like how to sear steak, how to make ground beef, how to roast chicken, like all the basic skills that everyone should know. And I do remember feeling like, Okay, when I cook my meals and I eat them, I feel far better than when I eat out. And I you know I was doing like the typical stuff in New York City that working professionals do. I was like getting salads from sweet green and sandwiches and you know now I realize that it's just loaded with like these sprayed vegetables that really don't actually want to be digested. but that's that's what I thought was, Quote unquote healthy at the time. So I start cooking my meals. I'm noticing I'm feeling better. I'm doing these endurance events. And then in 2019, everything changed when I stumbled upon uh, Dr. Sean Baker on Joe Rogan's podcast talking about the carnivore diet. And it's incredible it just how, in a three year span, how much more mainstream this diet and lifestyle has become. Because right in 2019, it was like the concept of eating just animal products was the craziest thing of all time.
0: It was so, I remember the first time we had a customer at the butcher shop that came in and mentioned carnivore and it was probably 2016, 2017. And I was, I thought they were nuts. I couldn't even imagine.
1: Yeah. You're like, okay, so you're telling me you're going to eat all red meat. And then these people though, they're eating the, they're eating this way and they're, they're curing these autoimmune conditions. They're talking about their skin getting better, their depression going away, their gut feeling amazing so there's something to that right but it's like oh we're taught oh those are just anecdotes there's no there's no literature around it there's no scientific studies around it so western medicine just brushes it off or gis they just brush it off but i was thinking to myself i remember thinking to myself i'm like this guy's over 50 he's thriving he's a surgeon he's clearly very well researched and he's also not dogmatic about what he's speaking about he literally said i think on the interview he's like He's like, look, I was surprised at how well this works. And like, I'm going to continue to experiment. And if it doesn't work, I'll move on to something else. But for now, I feel the best that I've ever felt. And I thought that there was something about that mental model of like the experimentation and using diet and lifestyle to help you get to that next level. That was really interesting to me. So I start doing some more research on the carnivore diet. And then I'm seeing all these anecdotal experiences of people that have Crohn's, colitis, IBS, eczema, psoriasis, all these quote unquote incurable autoimmune conditions that are claiming they're curing themselves from the carnivore diet. I remember Michaela Peterson, Jordan Peterson's daughter coming out of the woodwork who had crippling arthritis, had like a double ankle replacement and how she started going on this very strict, she calls it the lion diet where I think it was beef, I think it was beef, lamb, salt water and you know, she thought she was going to die and she was in the best shape of her life. So I'm I'm thinking to myself, how many experiences am am I going to see of people healing these autoimmune conditions to not try this myself? Like I'm still going to the bathroom too much. I don't feel as good as I possibly can. And if I need, if I could get off of a drug that I'm dependent on that costs, you know, almost a million dollars every two years, why would I not at least try it? So that it was like a mental, it was a mental shift. It was like being willing to experiment, right? Which, which I think is important for a lot of people is like, you got to just make the switch and just say, what is really the worst that can happen if I try this?
0: Absolutely. I love that. And I think that this is a really self-experimentation. And you said that in Sean Baker's interview, you heard this sort of mental model of experimentation. And I think we get so stuck in feeling a certain way. Okay. This is, and it gets normalized within our society, right? That you're tired in afternoons or bloating or some of these Various symptoms of inflammation are just normalized, but just because they're common doesn't mean they're normal. And I think that mental shift into well, how else could I feel? And let me experiment into that space. I think that changes everything.
1: A hundred percent. I think you make such a good point, Kate. Too that as a society, we've definitely normalized things that shouldn't be normal. Uh, I have so many friends that live in these big cities and go to you know, happy hours and they're eating out probably 80% of their meals. And they're telling me how, you know, they're like, they're, they're like, Oh, I think I might have IBS or like, I'm going to the bathroom all the time or I always feel bloated. I'm like, you definitely have undiagnosed IBS and you've just normalized it. And you're taking like a bunch of Tums before you go out or these other pills that you're, that you're getting over the counter from CVS. And I'm like, you do realize that like your gut should not be feeling like this all the time. Like you should have a a gut without any inflammation, without any symptoms, you should be able to go out and not, you know, experience that, but they think it's just so normal and they don't even realize that diet and lifestyle could potentially help get them to that end goal of what they want.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that having this conversation is so important because... Have to peel back these layers of. There is a different paradigm where you can feel your best and you don't have these symptoms. You're not reaching for tums. You're not reaching for advil. You're not reaching for these these over the counter or pharmaceutical drugs in order to mitigate symptoms.
1: Yeah, it's such a good point, and I think a good caveat is like, and something I like to talk a lot about is like, right? I'm I'm not an MD. I'm not a nutritionist. I don't have a medical degree. I'm not a regenerative farmer. I'm just someone that started to pay attention to these symptoms and said, hey, can I use food as a way to actually treat some of the things that are going on in my body and actually feel the way that I deserve to feel and experiment and tinker and iterate and things like that? So I think that's important. Is It's like just because you don't have a medical degree doesn't mean you can't experiment on yourself I think a lot of times we just take what our doctors say at face value and say, okay, doc, you gave me two to three prescriptions. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just immediately take those and not ask questions instead of thinking to yourself, I, I like my mindset is that I am the CEO of my own health, which I know is a little bit cliche, but it's a very important construct to have is to, you know, Take all your inputs, whether it's from that doctor, get a second opinion, experiment with different types of nutritionists and things like that, experiment with different foods and diets, and really figure out what makes the most sense for your body. What do you actually need to eat and consume and do to feel your best?
0: Oh, I think that's such an important message. And I think that you said two things in there that are really critical to me. Number one, that you deserve to feel good. And I think that we Mm -hmm. might have lost that. And nobody knows what it's like to be in your body other than you, your doctor, the people that you see looking to for health, like only you can have that experience and be the CEO of your own health in the way that you said, where you are the person that heals you. There is no outside force that can come in and heal you. Like that is your realm.
1: Absolutely. No, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And it was really that mental shift of thinking, okay, maybe I can use food to heal myself. That was really the start of everything because it's like, you can eat all the different foods you want. You can try the diets, but until you Until you have that mental belief that the body is capable of healing, I just don't think you're going to be able to get to that to that next level. So I so I made the shift, I made the commitment. Like I very I was living in the Upper East Side at the time. I went right over to the Whole Foods. I bought you know ground beef. I bought steak. I bought chicken. I bought salmon. I bought eggs. I think I was still drinking. I was still drinking some coffee at the time and some water. And I said, "Look, I'm going to do this for two weeks and see how I feel." And I was living in like this tiny little apartment, so I'm like cooking steaks. I'm smoking out the entire apartment. But it was like I just kind of dove, I, I I just dove in, and I literally remember after a week of doing this diet, my symptoms. I think I was going to the bathroom. I went down and going to the bathroom like one to two times a day. And so for someone with colitis or IBS, Crohn's, like that is almost unheard of within a week of doing it. I remember my skin cleared up. My complexion got better. My energy levels got better. I was popping out of bed for my 5 a.m. workouts, like, like vigorous and like excited to go and like attack the day almost. And my mental health improved too. Not that I I never had depression or anxiety or anything like that, but I noticed that things that would formerly bother me no longer bothered me. And I was after a week of doing this. And there's, you know, there's, yeah, there's no incentive for me to say this. It's just, this is genuinely how I felt. So I did that for, so those two weeks ended up turning into a few months of like very strict carnivore. I felt the best that I've ever felt. This is 2019. And then the, over the last three years, it's just been more experimentation and more refinement. So what I mean by that is, you know, at the time I was 24 ish. 25 and I could my budget, I could really only afford like grocery store meat. And I didn't really know the difference between grass fed, grass finished. I didn't know any farmers. I didn't know any ranchers. I was just trying to do the best that I could. And I think that that's an important caveat is like now I've gotten to a point where I, in which we'll talk about, is I'm very intentional about where I source all my food, connecting with local farmers, really prioritizing grass fed, grass finished meat. But if your if your knowledge or your budget only allows for you to get meat from the grocery store, that's still an amazing starting point. Like I don't agree with this methodology at all. That it's like if you're if you're not eating grass fed, grass finished, or you're like you're not eating testicle or organs, you're on the JV team, which certain influencers in the space say, and I think it's just so harmful to a lot of people and just detracting from the movement.
0: I agree completely. I think that the most important thing is accessing food that has the potential to heal you. And while maybe there are some different levels of that and exploration of that, I think the core truth here is that meat has this incredible power to heal. Even if it was grown on a feedlot in the Midwest eating corn and soy, like that is going to do your body. And your body recognizes that in a way that it is not going to recognize a Pop-Tart or a slice of pizza and really be able to harness that to heal.
1: It's, yeah, it's such a, it's such an important point. And I don't know, I just remember having this epiphany of like being in a grocery store and just looking at the outer aisle, of the grocery store, and like seeing that that's where all the real food actually was, you know, there you can get your steak, your chicken, your salmon, dairy, butter, cheeses. And then I was like, I just remember walking through the inner aisle, of the grocery store and being like, This isn't actually food. This is a food like product that's made in some laboratory that's owned by probably like 10 publicly, one of 10 publicly traded companies. And I'm not saying that that's inherently a bad thing, but it's like when you're publicly traded, your incentives are to maximize your shareholders' profit. So you're going to do the little things. You're going to cut corners. You're going to try and make the product as efficiently as possible. Hey, you know, maybe we used to cook this with tallow and olive oil. Well, instead, let's replace it with like a canola oil or a rapeseed oil or a peanut oil because it's just, you know, I, we our margins are going to be a little bit better. And it's like, you're continuing to fill your body with that food and you're not giving your genes what it actually wants. And the inflammation is building. And then, you know, you're getting diagnosed with colitis, you're, you're getting cancer, you're having heart disease. It's like, it makes so much sense, but we're not taught to think like this. We're just, we're just taught to accept that stuff. It's actually food. Like you, you, Right. Like you go to a yeah. gas station or an airport or, you know, CVS, or I was in, I was literally, I, I got a coffee this morning at the hotel, right. Um, right by where my apartment is. And I looked in the hotel lobby at like the, um, at the little food cart and it's popcorn, Pringles, crackers, all this crap. And I'm like, this is what they're feeding the people when they're walking into the hotel. Like no one actually is eating food anymore.
0: I I was curious to dig into this and maybe now's the time because I think that, as you harness the power of food and specifically meat to heal your body, there was no impetus from your doctor to do so. Nobody, nobody talks Mm -hmm. about this. And I think that there is no financial incentive for either big food or Mm -hmm. big pharma for people to get off of these very expensive drugs that are, I imagine, quite lucrative, or for people to get off of these foods that make just a handful of companies a lot of money. Uh, what you're doing is taking a massive amount of money out of both of those systems.
1: Uh, no, 100%. And I think a good, um, a good little story that kind of answers your question and puts a bow on my medical journey is that last year, 2021, I was feeling the best that I'd ever felt. I had this this kind of crazy gut feeling that I felt like all the inflammation was gone from my body. I just I felt so healthy. My stomach felt great. I was like, you know, I was doing Ironmans. I, I felt fantastic. And the more that I was digging into the space, the more I was learning about some of the side effects and unintended consequences of being on these drugs for an extended period of time. So I knew that every two years I had to get a colonoscopy because when you have an inflammatory bowel disease, you have a slightly increased chance of getting colon cancer. So they have to kind of monitor your inflammation over time. So I knew that I had a colonoscopy coming up in March of 2021. And I was like, why would I not try and talk to my doctor about getting off of this drug if I feel great? And I also had, I was having, I was actually, the, the drug was actually making me develop cystic acne after a couple of years, which is really interesting. I was getting like these, the cystic acne, like all over my body. And I'm like, why am I going to take something That's having all these unintended side effects on my body. So I said to my doctor, I was like, look, can we, can we talk about me getting off of this drug? Because my stomach feels great. I'm committed to this diet. I'm committed to this lifestyle. I'm very in tune. I'm never going to let a flare up happen again. Or if I do notice bleeding, I'm going to report it right away. And his response was, let's do the colonoscopy and then I'll get back to you and we can talk about it. So we go in for the colonoscopy. And I, he, we wake up and he's got I I get off the anesthesia and he's got a smile on his face. And he said, not only do you have no inflammation, you have zero micro inflammation as well, which is amazing. It was like a Testament to like, Hey, my gut feeling was right. I've actually gotten all the inflammation out of my stomach, which is which is an amazing thing. And he said that because of the way that I take care of myself to my, my commitment to this diet, because I had been te- i had been telling him about what I've been doing and my, my age, he was comfortable getting me off of this drug. And I don't want to say that I'm the first patient, but I'm, I don't recall him saying that he had had any other patients that had gotten off of a biologic before. So that was, a, that was an amazing feeling to actually like that, like that, that proved to me that. Everything that we have been taught about nutrition was incorrect. This aversion to saturated fat, this aversion to cholesterol, um, this aversion to red meat—it's like I ran towards a lot of those things and treated something that I developed because I was following this like nutritional paradigm that we thought was correct. Eating all these grains and seed oils and refined sugars and things like that. So that's really where like my mental model on science and nutrition really started to flip. And that's where I started to think about the fact that like, okay, well, like now I'm off, I'm um, now I'm off Remicade. So these comp these pharmaceutical companies are now down 400 K where they were getting 400 K for me for six years. So two, you know, $2.4 million just for me and incentives do drive behavior. So it's like, I don't want to I'm not going to sit here and act like everyone is nefarious, but we we definitely live in a system where it's like incentives are going to drive behavior. Profit is going to drive behavior. And these, you know, these drugs are incredibly profitable for for a lot of individuals and a lot of stakeholders.
0: Absolutely. And I think that it's hard to leave that paradigm. There isn't The information at this point in time, and I think, I think that's really beginning to shift, but at this point in time, the information to exit that modality of Western and allopathic medicine where you can use lifestyle and dietary interventions to heal your body is not popularized and and sometimes even vilified, I think, within the literature. And so there's a question there of, I mean, you had this, this impetus and this moment, and this is kind of a two-part question, but first, do you think that you are cured, you know, in the sense that cure versus remission? And what does it mean to help other people step out of that paradigm and look at these diseases whether you're looking at diabetes or ulcerative colitis or ibs and say these can be changed radically at least if not cured by diets and lifestyle
1: mm. yeah it's a great it's a great question so i don't think that i'm definitively cured and the reason why i say that is that when i when i Execute on diet and lifestyle when I sleep eight hours a night, when I drink really good quality water, when I cook all my meals, when I cook with tallow and ghee and prioritize sourcing my stuff from local farms and and follow a strict carnivore diet, like basically as close to red meat, salt, and water as possible. My stomach feels amazing. When I get away from that lifestyle, I can feel the inflammation coming back. And so, in full transparency, the last two months with everything that Harrison and I have been doing, and I was also working in corporate nine to five, I was traveling. I well, basically this past summer, I was just traveling and taking planes everywhere and I wasn't sleeping enough and I was stressed out and I was eating out more than normal. And I started noticing some of my symptoms coming back. But so when I notice that my symptoms are coming back, I go back to the very strict carnivore diet and that, and that gets me back to, to a really healthy baseline. So that's what I do
0: too. Yeah, exactly. It's actually, it's actually where I am right now too. I'm back on a strict carnivore.
1: Got it. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, you know, you want these other things, but, but I've just, I've just come to accept It's like, yeah, you might want these other things because they taste good or you want to have the slice of pizza every once in a while, but it's like my body just can't handle it. And do you want to get back to that point where you're in a full up, full on flare up, back in the hospital, back on Remicade, and it's like no cake or you know type of sugar is taste that good that I'm willing to give that up? So I think that the the whole point of that is like I don't think that I'm definitively cured, but if I follow a strict carnivore diet, I you know as cure as close to being cured or in a full remission as you can possibly be. And whenever I deviate from that path, that's when my stomach starts to act in those in those old ways. So you, it goes back to what we were talking about before about that self-awareness, checking in with yourself. Like for me, I keep a very particular type of food journal that helps me manage this. And my food journal is I very simply write down what time, what time do I eat my meals? What am I actually consuming? How are my energy levels? How are my bowel movements? And I just track all of that stuff. And for me, it's like, oh, you had three cups of coffee today. You weren't thinking about it. Maybe that's why your stomach is a little bit more acted up. Or, hey, you went out to eat at this restaurant. You thought you were getting steak, but your stomach didn't feel good. Oh, they fried it in like canola oil and you got laced and you didn't realize it, right? Or like when I was first going on my journey, I thought that, right, like dark leafy greens are good. I'm going to have crush a steak with some Brussels sprouts And I'm like, Oh, my stomach is really gassy and bloated when I eat like cruciferous vegetables. And then you start to go down like the plant toxin rabbit hole and you start to realize, Oh, a lot of these things don't actually want to be eaten. Okay. Let me cut those things out and let me stick to like pickles and avocados and maybe some more fermented foods that sit really well with my stomach. So, you know, a lot of it is that, that self experimentation. And what I would encourage people is that, you know, even though, there aren't a ton of study. There aren't a lot of funded scientific studies around carnivore, keto, therapeutic carbohydrate reduction. There are thousands and thousands of anecdotal testimonials of people that I could pretty much guarantee have the same condition as you that have healed themselves using that diet. So why would you not at least try and experiment and see if you could potentially have similar results and, and success for yourself, as opposed to just going on this like, medical merry-go-round of going from doctor to doctor and prescription to prescription and not actually treating the root cause of what's going on.
0: I want to touch on something you mentioned in there that I think is really important because we give up these various things, whether it's beer or coffee or pizza, or even things like dark leafy greens. I mean, that's something that this summer I incorporated a little bit more vegetables and coupling that with a little bit of stress. And I had my own autoimmune flare up that When I talk to my diet to people, there is often a sense of, oh my gosh, I can't believe you would ever give up X. And as a young guy in the world, I can imagine that you see a lot of that with your friends. But I think that, I think that there's a reframe that needs to happen. And it's not what we are giving up or sacrificing, but what we are gaining, which is this, this vitality and health.
1: 100%. I think you just hit the nail on the head. And I think, I, and I, I know it sounds weird, but I, I kind of say, like, I'm fortunate because I had such an extreme medical experience that I know what the lowest of the low is like. And so for me, it's, I, I realize, okay, well, if I, if you want to quote unquote fit in, and have a couple drinks or go out for pizza and you continue to do that, you're going to end up in the same spot that you were in six years ago. Like I mentioned before. And so for me, it's like, it's, it's nothing will ever taste so good to have to go through that experience again. But I think the more important mental model, which you touched on is like this concept of your potential and focusing on how good you actually feel when you clear yourself out of this metabolic rut, and continue to nourish your body with these nutrient dense foods, a lot of really good saturated fat, you know, animal products, raw milk, fruits from the local farmers market, a lot of you know, a lot of fatty red meat, it you feel so incredible. It just sets this amazing base layer for your life. Like a lot of times a lot of the pushback that I get is, "Oh, you know, you're going to pay like in California, things are just expensive. It's like, oh, you're going to pay $11 for that ancestral ground beef. And I'm like, I don't look at it as $11. I look at it as like the investment that I'm going to get from that food of like, well, what if I have more confidence? Oh, I'm going to do my job more effectively. Maybe I'll have the confidence to go get Kate on my podcast or you know write an amazing article because I now want to pop out of bed in the morning but we we're so we focus on like saving 3 or 4 dollars as opposed to how we can actually feel. So that's what I would say to people is like imagine the potential of your life if you really nourish your body with these foods and the compounding effect that it could actually lead to.
0: It's like compound interest. And I actually, I want to pull this tweet that you had just recently, because I think this idea of investing in our health is so important. Like, this Mm -hmm. is an investment that we make. Sometimes it's for now. I think for those of us that have experienced chronic illness, there's a really immediate benefit and return. And I know for other people, like my husband, who's made of steel, that He has to take a more long-term view that I'm investing so that I feel great when I'm 80, when I'm 90 and not just right now, but you had this great tweet. What if you viewed food as a holistic asset rather than an expense? For example, instead of looking at the price of regenerative meat, you focus on the value that meat will add to your life. You become healthier and have more energy to play with your kids. Priceless. I love this. I think that this is such an important concept, especially as we talk about spending more money on regenerative meat and sort of taking that next step in the journey. That health is an
1: investment. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you can unpack that. Oh man, health is an investment, and we've also we've also changed our relationship to food, where it's like we. Think of food as the tastiest option that's available, or we worry about minimizing our calories. But what food actually is is its energy and its nourishment. And you should be choosing to put in the most nutrient-dense foods as opposed to optimizing for what tastes the best. And then what you're going to realize is that as you start to eat these things that are single ingredients, whether it's you know meat, fish, eggs, raw dairy, fruits, vegetables, whatever, you rewire your taste buds. Because what a lot of people don't realize is that you know, big food, they work with these massive flavor houses. A lot of them are actually located in New Jersey, not far from where I'm from. And they know the perfect combinations of saltiness, sweet, umami, crunch, different types of textures to wire your palate to want to eat more of it and make it. And even though it's um, it's not satiating, you just can't stop eating it because they know the exact flavors to really get you addicted. So I think a lot about that of like, when you start to eat these single ingredient foods, you rewire your taste buds where it actually is, it is delicious. So you are getting that amazing flavor and it's filling you with the best possible energy that you can and i also don't i don't subscribe to this false belief that carnivore keto is more expensive than any other type of diet because you don't need to eat 2 $25 ribeyes a day there are amazing ways to prepare Ground beef and like you can roast in a a whole chicken from your farm that's fed the proper diet and it's like you know I I roast a chicken it's so delicious it's like a you know four or five pound bird I can get multiple meals out of it so number one it's it's definitely not more expensive and even if it was more expensive it's focusing on the effects of what you can become from that meal like we were talking about having more energy at the end of the day to play with your kids that's a priceless investment. Having more energy to now to start a side hustle outside of your nine to five, that could maybe turn that investment is either priceless to potentially millions of dollars. Having more energy to be more charismatic, more confident in a sales job, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars. So it's like, we don't, for whatever reason, we're not taught to think like this, but I know it and you know it and so many other people know it the diet is like this base layer where you get your metabolic health under control. You start to gain confidence and then everything else builds from there.
0: Yeah. It's a prioritization of feeling good and what benefit that can return to you in your life over time. And maybe it means you skip something. I mean, here in the United States, right? we spend about seven to 11% of our income on food versus 30% in most part of most parts of the world. And maybe it means making a sacrifice. You don't get the latest phone or, you know, you buy used computers or you don't get the new car or whatever that is, or the Netflix subscription, all of these things that it, it's just, again, this shift in perspective.
1: It is a shift in perspective. And I think, again, it it goes down to, it comes down to, like, I've just seen so many amazing stories of people that have transformed their lives, whether they've lost hundreds of pounds, they've cured incurable diseases, all because of diet and lifestyle. And I just think a lot about, like, the fact that, like, this, our time on this planet is so short and what could I potentially turn myself into? And I think a lot about, like, my, like, the food that I'm putting into my body is giving me the energy to go after like a lot of those pursuits and a lot of those dreams that I have. And I also know the feeling of like eating grass fed meat one day and then being like, oh, my parents are in town. They want to go to In-N-Out Burger and then having like the burger and the fries. That's like, you know, it's cooked in seed oils and it's like refined bun, whatever. And I just feel terrible. I feel lethargic. Like I don't want to write. I don't want to do work. So I think it's important for people to understand the contrast and at least experiment with it and just notice how you feel. Like if I would be shocked if you don't feel better after two weeks, like go back to your old style of eating. But I would really be shocked if you didn't feel better than you've ever felt after just a few weeks of preparing your own meals cooking with healthy fats eating more animal products it's just it's unbelievable what it can do and that's why i think you and i are you know we're getting so passionate and fired up in this conversation because we've realized what it's done for both of us and so many people that we love and care about too and just you want other people to experience it because that's how you deserve to feel
0: yeah I have this, you've mentioned the term gut feeling several times, which I think Mm -hmm. is really interesting because there's this gut-brain axis and this beautiful cascade and communication that happens between our enteric nervous system and our brains and our emotions, whether that's 90% of serotonin being produced in the lining of the gut. But as someone who's experienced all these gut issues and that being sort of, and, and this gets into something that's a little bit more woo, but the house of our intuition. And it really seems that you followed this space intuitively, that you've really been guided by a gut feeling. And as somebody who's had a broken gut that you've really healed, I'm, I'm just really curious about how you view that relationship to what a gut feeling is and, and leading from that and that intuitive space.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. I was just reading, um, have you ever read the book, the maker's diet by Jordan Rubin before? I haven't. I'll make a note though. You would really like it. So he founded, um, I think he founded Garden of Life Nutrition and then co-founded Ancient Nutrition with Dr. Axe. He's. I think he's in his fifties. He's like a devout Christian and he he had crippling Crohn's for like five years. He had it Ten times worse than I did. I think his his parents literally spent like hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to get him, uh, trying to get his his Crohn's under control. And the whole book about the Maker's Diet is, is him basically stumbling upon this concept of like a biblical diet where the Bible basically tells you what to eat. And the funny thing is, is like a lot of the foods that are approved in the Bible, it's basically like an animal-based diet, which is so interesting. So he starts following a lot of these principles and he ends up healing his Crohn's holistically. You know, he goes on to, 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 um, to build Garden of Life, amazing supplement company. And now he teaches a lot of people how to heal their gut and get their stomach under control and clear their body of inflammation. And so this book, The Maker's Diet, is really his journey of healing himself and getting to that point and he distills a lot of those principles and very early on he talks about this concept of how the gut is literally like a second brain which is why we we have we talk about a gut instinct it's really cuz you literally have a brain living in your gut and the gut is still so complicated right it's like there's still so little that we actually know but i subscribe to that theory very heavily and the reason why i say that is that as i've gotten my health under control I've just noticed my instincts have felt a lot stronger and I've trusted my instincts a lot more closely. And I think a good example of that is as I was starting to heal myself, I was feeling this kind of pull to want to push my, I wanted to put some content out there. I wanted to share my journey. And I, I remember trying to like write a blog on it a few times. And this was like 2019, 2020 and I just didn't feel comfortable. And then in 2020, the start of 2022, you know, Harrison and I really just made that push to want to um, share our thoughts and our insights and nutrition in the food space. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I was the healthiest that I'd ever been. And I felt this calling to do so and start writing about it, and it gains traction. And then I started to, you know, I was I was writing and building a following and then also trying to balance a corporate sales job a nine to five. And I felt this pull where I was like, I think what you're doing with the meat mafia is gonna be way more impactful than anything that you're gonna do in your nine to five. So I was balancing, like I was you know, taking breaks in the middle of my work day to write Twitter threads and take networking calls and book podcast guests, because I just had this trust that what we were working on was way bigger than me. And I was so passionate about it. And then we talk about like going down the road, getting to a point where I said, look, I think I need to quit my job and pursue meat mafia, even though we're not making a ton of money yet, because there's just some opportunity that's there that I can't quantify, but I just know that it's the right direction. So that's kind of like my personal experience, but I've just noticed that the healthier that I've gotten, the less inflammation I've gotten, the more that I lean in on that gut instinct and trust it. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. Do you find that to be the same for yourself?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that there is so much intuition and that, that feeling of being called and just being guided by a, Pull of something that you can't fully understand, right? It's that instinct. And I think that it is very much a part of a part of what it means to be human, to be animal, to be able to follow that space. But when that's broken, when that's literally leaky inside of your body, there's going to be a diminished capacity for communication Mm -hmm. between, between second brain and brain or wherever that lives. And I don't think we, I don't think we fully understand anything about that, especially as we talk about something that's populated by millions and millions of microbes and fungi that there is a reciprocity in that microbiome that I don't think we yet understand. But the more that that has become healed for me, I feel the same way. And it was in March of this year when I started the podcast, we started at the same time was the healthiest that I had ever been and Mm. was ready to finally make this leap of something that I've been wanting to do for five years. So I think that there is a deep connection there that we can begin to rebuild when we heal.
1: Absolutely. And I think what you said it goes back to our previous point about the concept of cost and holistic asset where assets where it comes to food, where it's like it's not a coincidence that both of us were the healthiest that we'd ever been and then had the confidence to make this plunge and do this creative thing that we didn't even know what it was going to turn into, but we just, we just felt a calling to do so. And that's the power of getting your health under control is you just, you know, you're able to actually chase your dreams and have that little edge, that little bit of confidence that maybe you didn't have before when your body was just in this metabolic rut. Like I know what it feels like to be in New York and i'm making a mental map of like where all the starbucks bathrooms are because i'm worried i'm literally going to have to go to the bathroom while i'm on a date with someone like you're never going to have confidence when you're in that when you're in that chronic state of inflammation so you know think about what you could actually do if you're able to take your body's energy like divert it away from healing the inflammation and actually focus it externally on the world it's pretty incredible
0: i love that and i love that both of us ended up with meat as this big healer. And and yes. that's kind of, that kind of dovetails into something else I want to ask you because, and you brought in something even more potent. You've shifted into sourcing meat from regenerative farms. You've experienced meat's healing power and you've talked to all of these guests, right? Over a hundred people now on the podcast, many of which looking at meat's power to heal land and soil systems. Mm -hmm. But there's also this power to heal our connection, right? Both of us found a calling in talking about meat and that maybe not healing, but driving purpose. Mm -hmm. And I just want to hear how you feel meat in this space and it's power to heal. Because I think that you've experienced that on so many different
1: levels. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing question. And it's something I think about a lot because I remember when I first started to go carnivore and I looked at my plate and it was like this massive ribeye with three eggs. And like, I had this mental construct of like, am I literally going to kill myself if I continue to eat like this? This is 2019 because all I had been told is that I had been, you know, we were demonizing saturated fat. I told, I was told that meat raises, you know, red meat raises your cholesterol. It's going to cause heart attacks. It's going to cause a stroke. It's going to cause all these things. Yet I could look at a plate of Taco Bell or whatever and be like, ah, it's not the, it's not the most unhealthy thing, but I can eat it every once in a while. Whereas like, I would look at this big steak and think that I was literally going to die eating it. And I, I think that that goes to show how brainwashed we've been about nutrition and we really have such a small minute understanding of what real food actually is. And when I look at something like red meat, there's so many people that I talk to that are that tell me that their their body can't handle red meat or it's incredibly inflammatory. I just view that as a lack of knowledge and a lack of insight. And I think for a lot of people, I, I think we consume less than two grams of red meat a day. It's like an abysmally small number. Most people, when they're going out for red meat, they're going out for a steak or a burger, right? So it's like, yeah, there's red meat in it, but there's also... A bun with like, like in refined wheat, there's cheap crops that are spraying glyphosate. They're eating French fries that are fried in seed oils. They're probably getting a milkshake. They're having alcohol. They're having a glass of wine. It's an
0: unhealthy user bias.
1: A hundred percent. That's yeah, you literally just nailed it. So you ask yourself, you're like, okay, well, is it the red meat that doesn't make you feel good, or is it all the other crap that you're eating with? with the steak and your small sample size. So that's just something I think a lot about when people tell me that they can't handle red meat. But then when you actually start to do the research and you, you look at like, we're so wired to look at food just from a macronutrient perspective, right? We're we look at it, calories, protein, fat, carbohydrates. When you start to rewire your brain and think about the micronutrient profile, like what are the actual vitamins and minerals that I'm extracting from the meat? and you do the comparison of red meat versus all these other different cuts that are available or fruits and vegetables, you're like, this is the most nutrient dense food that I can put into my body. And then, you know, you love to see these vegan comparisons of red meat versus, um, you know, like certain micronutrients and spinach or some of these other plant-based foods. And then you get in the topic of bioavailability, which is like, how well is your body actually absorbing and digesting? You and I were talking about like the dark leafy greens you know, you're being told that it's really high in micronutrients, but then your stomach feels terrible. It's like, well, your stomach feels terrible because you're not actually processing it. You're just going to the bathroom. You're not actually digesting any of it because it's not very bioavailable. So for me, it's like, I mean, I really credit consuming more red meat as to That was really the mechanism that gave me my life and my health back and this vitality that I didn't even know existed. And then you take it a step further and you realize that there's all these indigenous tribes like the Maasai and the Inuits and people throughout the course of history that have literally thrived off of red meat. There's all these cave paintings of hunters that are going after bison and antelope and these, you know, these predators. And you're like, you don't really see cave paintings of people eating fruits and vegetables. We've been, you know, hunter gatherers for thousands and thousands of years and then all of a sudden we start to see like our obesity go up like this on the graph over 150 years and we're blaming red meat for this overabundance of processed food that didn't even exist 100 years ago. It's pretty insane. And then that's why I love people like Dr. Anthony Chafee and Dr. Sean Baker, because they like, they've dug up papers of like Jay Salisbury from the 1800s. Like they've named the Salisbury steak after him, but he was literally treating people with Crohn's and colitis and inflammatory diseases with all red meat removal diets. Like the literature is there. It's just a lot of it's been hidden or destroyed. And, you know, we don't even understand what science really is. Like, especially when it comes to meat consumption, like we think about this concept of science and it's like your concept of science is like this vegan backed epidemiological study that's kind of engineered to get a certain outcome. So that's kind of like, that's rewired my brain a lot too. And I think it's an important thing for everyone to ask themselves, whether it's a carnivore study or a plant-based study or a meat study, it's like, who is actually funding these things because their incentive is going to drive the behavior. You know, how is the data actually procured? And that's really how you determine if it's a good study or not. Um, Who
0: stands to profit?
1: A hundred percent, right? It's like, and now with social media, you can take this one point from a study, turn it into like this nice little Instagram clip or reel. And then it goes viral because people can share it. And then it's like, oh, you know, what? It, what is it? Like meat is as carcinogenic as cigarettes or it's 700% more likely to increase colon cancer. Like whatever the crazy statistic is, people just focus on that one statistic without any context behind it. They don't know where the study comes from. They reshare it. And then the unfortunate thing is people get influenced by that. It's almost like that fear porn and the fear mongering. And then they decide to give up meat and go down the plant-based rabbit hole where they're eating you know, beyond beef and these fake commodities that didn't exist 20 years ago. And they're just, you know, they're products of monocrop agriculture. They're sprayed with pesticides. They're, you know, loaded with seed oils and they think they're actually being healthier. So that's kind of a quick tangent. But the whole point is that I think you and I have had these experiences in with nutrition that have made us realize that everything we've been taught about food and red meat is incorrect. And it's one of the most healing things that you can put into your body.
0: This is actually one of the reasons that I just adore the both of you are these deep dives into the historical context of how we got where we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that whether you're looking at the history of polyunsaturated fatty acids and, and rapeseed oil and how that enters the dietary lexicon, or you're looking at the growth of a chicken from, you know, yes. the earlier nineteen hundreds to what the Cornish cross looks like now and that evolution. You're looking at the intersection of the of how science has been fed to us maybe manipulated and the rise of big food and that intersection and really uncovering the why like this, the why and the how this is how it happened, which I think having that contextual and nuanced history helps shape so much of these conversations and something that we're missing in those little Instagram snippets that go viral is just this, this, whole history that's before it. And so I have this, I'm not quite sure what the question is, but you have done such a good job at uncovering that history and showing it and allowing people in on, there's a reason that all of this has happened and come together.
1: Absolutely. That's, that's a big reason why we wanted to, we wanted to start the Me Mafia is we wanted to very simply just help people get healthier and try and answer the question, like, how do we actually get here? Right. When we're we're talking about 70% of U.S. adults being overweight or obese, 40-plus percent of our children are overweight or obese. One in 10 children have fatty liver disease, so a disease that was formerly reserved for like aged alcoholics. Our kids are now getting that from food. And you look at the cost of insulin, type 2 diabetes, 600,000 people dying of heart disease a year. It's like, okay, well, how did we actually get here? Because 200 years ago, the numbers didn't look like this. And we've been eating a certain way for thousands of years since time immemorial. And now we're in the war. We're basically in a metabolic crisis. We're twelve, like, I think it's legitimately 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. I think so it was I recently was, yeah.
0: less. I think that was the number for years. And now it's even less than wow. that.
1: Which is literally insane because our bar is already so low, which I think you commented on.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. But so the whole point is like these Twitter threads that we've written whether it's on the demonization of saturated fat through Ansel Keys, the history of lunchables, how much our chickens have increased, the history of glyphosate and how prevalent that is in agriculture now. It's like we didn't get here by coincidence. It was a series of patterns and behaviors and decisions that were made over the last 100, probably more so like 50-ish years that have gotten us to the point now. And it's not just a single variable as to why we've gotten here. It's a collection of different things that are all interwoven. So that's really, I think that's what's resonated with people is that even if someone is reading our threads that doesn't know a ton about diet and lifestyle, they still realize that something is wrong. They realize that we're not healthy as a population. And I think our, the the way that we tell these stories just helps people unpack it a little bit. Because even like Ansel Keys, that's something that's That's it's much more popularized now, but when you start to hear the story of Eisenhower having a heart attack in 1955. And this scientist from the University of Minnesota is convinced that it's saturated fat that's causing it. Not the fact that Eisenhower smoked four packs of cigarettes a day for decades um, and was able to influence and get his way onto the American Heart Association, which then got a $1.5 million donation from Procter & Gamble, which started Crisco, which is the first vegetable oil. You start to see these things and you're like, oh, wow, like this is... uh, So basically our whole dietary guidelines from 1980 were based off of like an unfounded hypothesis. It's like, you almost think that that's like, that's too good to be true, but it actually is. And that's why you need to tell these stories to people so they can, they can intake the information and do some of their own research and come to their own conclusion.
0: And better understand that, that it's not random. It's not arbitrary. We're not just questioning why we're here. There is a backstory behind that. And as you've, as you've made these threads and as you've talked to hundreds of, you know, over a hundred guests now that have written some incredible books on this, I'm curious what your why are we here? And just like your main takeaways and how we got here.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tough, right? Because I've grown up being a proponent of free market principles. And I think that this country is unbelievable and the ability to be able to build and create business and create a name for yourself and change your family's financial status and the American dream. Like that's all stuff that I'm so deeply passionate about. And like, that's something that resonates a lot with my family. But when I look at like the corporatization of food and how we, we speak a lot about the monopolization in big tech, but there's kind of this like quiet, like semi monopolization of food that has occurred over the last last few decades whether it's like four beef packers controlling like 90% of the meat that you get in a grocery store to the fact that like anytime you're walking in the inner aisle of the grocery store you see all these different boxes these vibrant colors these packages chips cereals crackers bread whatever there's really like an illusion of choice, right? Because there's about 33,000 products in a grocery store. I think that's what Michael Pollan said, Whoa. which is crazy, right? 33,000, yeah. the number could be even higher. Cause I think he wrote that was from food Inc in 2009. So it probably is a lot higher, but it's really like this web of like 10 companies that's controlling all right. All 33,000 products, which is scary. And then even the products themselves, it's really corn, wheat, soy, refined sugar, all kind of reworked in different intricate ways and in different ratios of sugar to corn, to wheat, whatever. But it's kind of like the same four ingredients controlled by 10 companies. You know, and we as the consumer are the ones that are on the losing side of that all. And it goes back to what we were talking about, that a lot of these companies, they are publicly traded. They're in, I'm not saying that they're, I mean, they are doing something wrong, but I'm saying they're trying to optimize for their shareholder profit. Which is technically legal in this country because that's part of the system. And they don't have the health, they unfortunately don't have the health of the end consumer in mind, which is you. So it's like this strange corporatization. And then you know this far better than I do. But then it's like you even take it a step further in terms of how we're growing the food. And these these poor farmers that, you know, they're they're trying to put food on the table for their family. And they're getting subsidized to create more corn, wheat, and soy, which is driving their behavior. If they want to go do something regenerative like you or White Oak Pastures or some of these amazing farms, they're pretty much left out to dry and they're not getting any support. And so that's that's kind of a lot of what I see. I don't know. Did you see uh, that blog post that Will Harris had from White Oak Pastures the other day?
0: Yeah, I did.
1: Yeah. Yeah we just wrote about in our in our substack how the USDA just they they just released um i think they were doing some type of like climate smart grant and farms and companies could apply to it you know, white oak pastures, arguably like the best regenerative farm. It's been in the Harris family for six generations. We were just out there a couple of weeks ago and we're just blown away by just the Harris family and the way that they raise their animals and the, the slaughterhouses and how they're just doing everything the right the right way and trying to regenerate the soil. So they applied for this grant because I think they have a specific method of how they graze either their lamb or their sheep. And I think they were trying to they were gonna use the money to teach other smaller regenerative farms to implement those practices. So of course they don't get the grant and Will's like, that's fine. Like I'm a big boy. You know, we don't, we didn't get the grant. And then he got pissed off when he realized the companies that got awarded the grant. And it was like JBS, Cargill, Target, Microsoft, ButcherBox, like all these companies that have basically been the ones that have been messing our climate up through their practices they're the ones that receive the grant yet a regenerative farm like will is deemed unworthy to get the grant so kind of a tangent there but it's just interesting um like it's just these yeah
0: it's not because it's a really good example of the way that money flows within the system and yes. how hard it is to get outside of this paradigm because of that flow of money
1: yes a hundred percent. And, um, we just, yeah, it's, it was just interesting to see that example because he literally brought it up when we were out there for that beef initiative conference. Cause I think he had just gotten the decision a few days before. And it just makes you wonder, like, what is the criteria of the USDA? Like, what are they actually using to determine who receives these grants? Is it, is it donation based? Is it like, you, you just don't really know. I'm, I'd be curious. I want to do some research to figure out like, are they making any of that information public?
0: I'm curious and I think that this can get this can get a little convoluted and a little conspiratorial but I think that there's an obvious tie in here with your experience being on a pharmaceutical drug that's worth that much how much collusion or how much uh synthesis there is between big food and big pharma, where if we recognize as we have laid out in this conversation that so many of these 33,000, I can't get over that number, 33,000 foodstuffs in the grocery store that are packed full of predominantly wheat, soy, sugar, if these things are truly making us sick, and then we are having to then turn to pharmaceutical implements to help us feel better with no recommendation for dietary or lifestyle changes then if you're following the money and you're asking who stands to gain there is a connection there
1: a hundred percent I think it's very simple right it's like Bayer literally owns Monsanto which controls what is it like 80 percent of all GMO crops or seeds I don't know what the exact statistic is I don't, don't mis- but it's something it's it's something that's that it's anywhere from like 60 to 80 percent. So it's like okay, you literally have a pharmaceutical company that's controlling the seed that the food that you're ingesting is coming from. So like I think that speaks for itself. So I don't. It's it's not a conspiratorial thing at all. It's I think that is very simple. Everything that you're seeing in a grocery store, in a gas station, even what you're being served at a restaurant. It's not actually food and these diseases, these, these autoimmune diseases, these chronic diseases, they didn't exist hundreds of years ago. And now all of a sudden they've popped up and it's very simple. It's like, if you're going to continue to feed into that system, you're going to get sick. But if you continue to eat these single ingredient foods that we've eaten for thousands of years, where we were metabolically thriving, it's like, that's going, that's the decision that you need to make for yourself. And I get it. Cost is a factor, budgets, a factor, time, convenience, etc. cetera. But it's like, you're telling me you can't take five minutes to cook up some ground beef and throw some taco seasoning on it for you and your kids. Like, I don't know. It's, um, it's just very, very interesting. And it's just so many different factors that have gotten us to this point. But I think the whole purpose of what you and I are talking about is like, you have to recognize what's going on and then realize that you have agency over yourself and you can intentionally choose to make, to put the best possible food into your body for yourself for your family, for your kids. And you can break free of that system. So you can literally go to uh, eatwild.com no matter where you are in the country. And you can find local meat, local eggs, raw milk, these products that are as nature and God intended them to be. And you can go connect with a local farm. You can shake their hand and they're literally incentivized to provide you with the best possible food.
0: Yeah. And I, I actually have a space that I wanted to jump into because I think we just talked so much about... How the problem has manifested within society and how we've seen the growth of these chronic illnesses and it's such a it's such a difficult thing to look at when you look at you know at least eighty eight percent of Americans being in poor metabolic health and the rise of everything from ulcerative colitis to multiple sclerosis and all of these different dietary issues and I want to talk about the antidote too, and I think that this is something that You've covered a lot in your podcast, but you also said something towards the end there, and I missed i missed some of it because of our internet connectivity issues. But you talked about it can be simple. We can just go, we can just make some ground beef. We can get out of this situation of purchasing these 33,000 items from grocery store shelves. And as you've talked through this with so many experts, what do you see as the antidote?
1: Yes. I think it's an amazing question. And the reason why I think it's an amazing question is that you and I could literally have a 15 hour podcast right now talking all about the problem and why we are in this metabolic crisis that we currently are. And you just touched on it. It's very complex, whether it's incentives, driving behavior, profit, lobbying, farming practices, subsidies, this stuff is so interwoven and and complex, but I think you make a great point is it's like yes, it's very complicated, it's going to take a long time to fix those issues, but like if you're listening to this as the as the conscious consumer that wants to be healthy, what can you do? And I think the grit, the amazing thing is that it's a very simple solution, and the solution is consciously choosing to just eat real foods and nourish your body with those real foods. So I think when we started the meat mafia part of what we, I think we were a little bit dogmatic of just pushing like low carb, cut your carbohydrates, eat more red meat, um, eat more saturated fat, which I do think is all true. But that's just the approach that worked for Harrison and I and yourself. It's worked for a ton of people. But I think what we've changed our tune to is the fact that every body is so complex and so different and we all process foods very differently. So the way that that we shift it, and for anyone that's listening to this, is our definition of real food is Meat, fish, eggs, raw dairy, fruits, vegetables, coffee. And it's up to you to figure out what ratios of those foods work the best. So I think a good example of that is like, I have my opinion on veganism. But if it's going to get you, if you're going to get off of processed food and you're going to cook your vegetables and you're going to source your stuff very intentionally and you feel great, I have no right to tell you that you should be eating more animal products or saturated fats. You know, I have an opinion. I have a lot of data, but that means nothing. All I care about is that you feel as amazing as possible. Maybe a Mediterranean diet where you eat a lot of fish, you feel amazing maybe it's it's straight carnivore maybe it's paleo maybe it's keto there's so many different ways for us to skin the cat but i think to what you had said earlier the self experimentation is huge and it's about learning it's about learning to take control of yourself first get yourself in good health so that way we can properly share this message and i can guarantee you that if you make the effort to cook almost all of your meals really healthy fats a really good quality olive oil, avocado oil, butter, ghee, tallow, lard. You source your stuff very well. You're eating single ingredient foods. You get daily sunlight exposure. You meditate. You walk 10,000 steps. You do some type of exercise. This stuff isn't complicated. You're going to feel amazing, and you're effectively getting out of that very complex system, that industrial food complex where it's, it's very complicated to address the problem, but it's a very simple solution. And as we start to think about doing this stuff on a greater scale, none of that collectivism is going to happen without you first starting to kind of like put your own house in order and get your own health in order before we can start to really, you know, unite and create some positive change.
0: I love that because you, earlier in this conversation, you mentioned the word agency. And Mm. I think that this is such an important component of reclaiming your health is this experimentation and using a food journal to track symptoms and taking back a sense of agency. And when I look at the trajectory as you so perfectly, I mean, you just distilled it so beautifully that we've taken to where we've gotten, we've lost so much of this agency to corporatization. Yes. And so if each individual begins to reclaim that agency as a collective, what we are taking back, I think, can be really disruptive.
1: Exactly. And that's why we we end our podcast, we ask our guests all the time, you know, when you think about the future of society and the food system, are you generally optimistic? Are you hopeful? And I think to like kind of answer the, my own question, it's like I'm extremely hopeful because of conversations like this. And this movement in regenerative agriculture that's growing and seeing, getting DMs from people every single day of people telling me, oh, I suffer from Crohn's for years. I started eating animal-based. My symptoms are the best they've ever been. Or, you know, oh, you know, I, my skin cleared up. My anxiety went away. Like we're continuing to get so many of those anecdotal experiences that I'm really confident that eventually we'll be able to get a lot of this stuff funded and and be able to build these scientific studies that we can then take to a GI or a Western doctor that's actually proof of concept so they can start to talk to their patients about some of this stuff. But also when we think about taking autonomy, I don't want to just sit here and blame the doctors. right? Like, If you're talking to your GI, they might not know about carnivore. They might not ever have heard of carnivore. They probably have never had a patient that's gone keto and had success with it. So it's your right as the patient to talk to them and tell them about the success you've had, or maybe send them some podcasts or some materials. Maybe they'll blow it off, but maybe it'll open their eyes to this totally new perspective that exists. So I think we shouldn't just blanket think, oh, they know about carnivore, they're just not choosing to tell me about it. I think a lot of it is a lack of knowledge And that's where it goes back to the agency and taking control of what you can control and telling them about what you're experiencing. So they then understand, oh, wow, I have a patient that's trying this and he or she is doing really successful. Let me do some research into this. And then maybe they start prescribing it to other patients. So it's like this positive chain reaction, but you have to be the driver of it. You can't rely on other people to do that.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think it comes back to the idea that you are are the CEO of your own health and your own healer. And... I think the way that we talk to others, whether it's our family members or our friends, but you touched on something really important here. We also have to talk to our doctors. And I think that the way that we interface with the medical community has to change. I I can imagine you have had a lot of trials within that space of how you communicate back and forth with doctors, anybody who's dealt with chronic illness. it, It can be a really trying experience and increasing that communication in all of those places.
1: Totally. Totally. And the other thing too, that's interesting with medicine is there's, we talk about this decentralization of food that we're both very passionate about, like the conscious decision to go buy food from like a local regenerative farmer, shake their hand, build that relationship. There's also this decentralization in medicine that's currently occurring right now. Like we've had a number of doctors on and practitioners that would actually be great guests on this podcast that have gone out on their own and started their own telemedicine practices because what they're teaching is against this like conventional grain, like Dr. Philavadia, Dr. Tro, Dr. Brian Lenskis, heart surgeons, endocrinologists that are treating a lot of these metabolic diseases or type two diabetes with low carb practices. And they want their own practice to be able to have autonomy to treat their patients the right way. So, but the thing is with a lot of those practices is they probably don't accept insurance, so you are you have to be willing to have that skin in the game and pay out of pocket. But you're paying out of pocket for doctors that truly are invested in your health and are going to talk to you about diet and lifestyle and a lot of these preventative measures that you're probably not going to get by a doctor that's just you know covered by insurance and you're going to see them for 12, they're going to be 30 minutes late to the appointment because they're so backed up, they're going to give you eight minutes, they're going to look at your chart beforehand and they're going to just blanket prescribe you prescription and walk out of the room. It's like, yeah, you can take that and have it covered by insurance, or would you rather pay a couple hundred bucks out of pocket, but get the best possible care by a doctor that's really invested in you? So I think that's really important. And then there's also other resources to find doctors. I know um, Doug Reynolds, who runs Low Carb USA, he has a website. uh, It's called the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners, and they give you a database and directory to find doctors in your area that have this specific credentialism where they're going to talk to you about diet and lifestyle and low carb practices. So, you know, the decentral. it's really interesting to see this like decentralization occur in medicine. And I'm very hopeful that it's going to help make people healthier and more doctors will have the courage to go out on their own and treat patients the right way and not just continue to go at the Western status quo.
0: I think that's the perfect phrase for it, too. It is the decentralization of medicine. And I'm curious because you guys talk a lot about decentralization of currency and are more in the cryptocurrency world, the decentralization of food and all of these different spaces. And. I'm curious in that why you think that right now is this moment of breakdown for all of these different industries. That this, there is this, this word that has bubbled up in our lexicon that I think three years ago wasn't being used at nearly the frequency that it is now, which is decentralization. And what's happening right now that is catalyzing all of these things to break apart and to be disrupted.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I love the quote that Rome wasn't built in a day, but Rome also didn't decay in a day as like this gradual decline. And I think that that's probably true for a lot of aspects of the U S and Western culture in general. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just COVID it's been a number of things that have gone on over the last couple of years. And I think COVID was kind of the big bang that exposed it. So I think I'm a good example of like, I was living in New York. I was in this corporate sales job, was content, was going to just keep going, climbing the corporate ladder. And then because of this event that occurred, I was now out of my element for the first time, like hundreds of millions of other people were. And it gave me a lot of time to think and think about what I want to do and do I want to just log into Zoom and just continue to do this job? Do I even want to live in New York City anymore? Is the is the ROI of living in a city even worth it? And we just had more time to think and educate ourselves. And I think that's part of the reason why Bitcoin had made such a huge uh, surgence during COVID is that people started to really, they started to question, okay, the government can just press a button and print trillions of dollars. Like there's no energy behind that. Oh, there's like, there's no, it's not backed by gold. It's not backed by silver. It's literally just backed by legal tender. Like, what does that actually mean? That's, that's kind of strange. And then you start, you start going down this rabbit hole. And then I think what's interesting is that when we started the meat mafia, the Bitcoin community was the first community that was very passionate about what we're doing. And I think that there's, there's this connection between when you start to understand these broken incentives in our financial system, you naturally start to question other industries like you were talking about. And you're like, well, these broken incentives also perfectly translate into our food system. And so we've kind of, we've accepted this broken financial system and then we've accepted this, this broken food system. Well, shit, I don't want to be part of that system. How do I create my own system? Do I want to, start to own some Bitcoin and have true digital ownership over an asset that the government can't touch. So like when Amos Miller, who's a farmer that's getting raided by the federal government for making, for creating raw milk, he has an asset that the government can not actually repossess. It's like, okay, that's actually really interesting. Like to be able to protect yourself against like some of the violence of the state. So I think it was just, I think it was just this awakening of COVID that there was a group of people that realized the government is actually overstepping and they're overreaching in a way that I never actually thought was possible. So I want to align myself and protect myself and my family in a way that I never really thought possible before. And they're doing that through Bitcoin. They're doing that through carnivore diets and building relationships with our farmers and getting out of these huge metropolitan cities and maybe starting their own farms or their homesteads or just buying land, there's kind of like this convergence going, not convergence, this separation in society where there's a group of people that are going to continue to stay in these huge metropolitan cities and continue their, you know, their corporate jobs and financial services and feed the machine. And I'm not saying that there's anything inherently wrong with that. Um, And then I think there's going to be this other kind of like splintering group of people that are going to be probably like, they're going to be far more decentralized in the way that they approach their life. And it's going to be really interesting to see what does that actually shake out to be over the next five to 10 years, because there is just this massive rift in society right now.
0: There is and I, I actually view it like we're at the precipice. That bifurcation represents a space that I'm curious in five to ten years, will we have bifurcated to the point where we can ever come back, where we can ever, you know, sort of interweave those two very different tracks of humanity. And there is there is this this feeling right now that we are on the precipice of, of this division. And at the same time, I want to make sure that we, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, leave space to bring in people that want to come over and to weave things together, that it's important that we find some aspect of unity in the way that we talk to one another. Uh, This is the conversation that you and I have had, that we don't just we don't just bad mouth other dietary dogmas and things on Instagram that and Twitter that we leave space for people to come in and explore this realm. And so I see the same thing. I see this bifurcation and I wonder, I wonder what that means for us and how, how we can make sure that we leave room to heal and to have some unity.
1: Yeah, it's such a good point. And a lot of it, I think stems from what you were saying is like the willingness to speak to other people with with different opinions and try and have a conversation and come to a place of understanding. I think I was, I was talking to one of my friends like a little over a year ago and I was saying, you know, I understand why, why group of people voted for Biden. I understand why a group of people voted for Trump. Like, I understand why the differing sides felt the way that they did, and she like she couldn't understand that she was. um, I'm not saying that that there's anything wrong. She was incredibly left leaning, and her justification was that Trump was violating human rights, which I don't really understand what she meant by that. But I think the, the purpose of me saying that is like there's so much we're putting so much emotion and morality into into the way people think. And we're like, oh, you think this way? You're a terrible person. I don't even want to talk to you and give you the time of day where it's like, no, it's like there are there are a host of reasons why people think certain ways, but there's no chance of you ever finding some common understanding if you're not even willing to like just sit down and have a conversation.
0: It's the lens of the anti, that yes. everything is framed in. I'm anti-vegan or I'm anti-meat or and I'm anti-left, I'm anti-right and everything is framed in opposition to instead of making space for where there is similarity or potential for collaboration.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah. We're trying to have, um, the guy that literally runs the vegan Twitter account, like the account is called vegan on Twitter. He had commented on one of my threads and he commented on that chicken thread that went very viral because what happens is like the first day of doing a viral thread, it's like all the animal based people will see it. And then after like day two, day three, it starts to like kind of like trickle into the vegan algorithm and you get a lot more negativity. But one of the things that he had mentioned is that he had like tagged Michael Pollan and a couple other people and he mentioned how that there are, there, he's never seen the an animal based advocate, diet advocates speak about, you know, rights of animals and humane treatment of animals and things like that. And I was like, "Look, I think that we have far more in common than you think we do." I'm anti big four packer. I'm I am pro animal rights. That's why I choose to source my stuff from regenerative farms. Like, let's get you on the podcast and let's have a conversation. And we've ended up having some really amicable conversations in the DMs. And I don't know how the podcast itself is going to go, but I think we have a lot more in common than what they think. Like, I, I wrote a I think I, I wrote a little tweet yesterday that basically said. Um, You know, I think it's important to give thanks to the animal for every, before every meal that you eat, because it it gave its life for you. And there were all these vegans that just like jumped on my, like just jumped on my back, just being like, it didn't give its life for you. Like you murdered it and all this stuff. And it's very, it's interesting how, when you just hide behind a screen, it's easy to just like project your dogmas at people. But the whole point is like, we need to have these conversations because I think if they actually spoke to me and they realized that, okay, he's against these packers and these massive processing centers and the treatment of animals on these farms is incredibly humane. And also maybe just the concept of death and consuming animals, there's no morality behind it. It's amoral. You know, there's 40 plus species in nature that are carnivores. The science, a lot of studies have shown that we've either evolved to be carnivores or omnivores. And it's not about, you know, of course there's a sadness to having to end the animal's life, but it's also about eating a species-appropriate diet, and those animals just happen to be the diet that's going to make us feel the best. Like, what do you want me to do? I've tried to eat plants and fruits, and it destroys my stomach. It'll probably end up killing me down the road. So am I just supposed to not eat meat? Am I just supposed to die? But the whole point is, like, we're never going to get to those, the root cause and get to some solutions if you're not willing to actually speak and have an adult conversation with the other person.
0: Absolutely. And this podcast is happening. He's going to come on the Meat Mafia.
1: He he is. We have to lock in the date and we were supposed to get him on. We couldn't do it originally, but we we were just DMing last week. We're supposed to get him on hopefully this fall.
0: That's really exciting because I think it's really important for these conversations to happen in a space where it's adults speaking to one another and having some respect for each other's ideas, whether or not you agree with them, to be able to see where people are coming from. I, As you were talking, I was recently, a friend of mine did a a webinar on soil and just all of the microorganisms inside of soil. And I was really struck by some of the carnage in that space. And yet again, another space where animals are eating one another and are built to have some cyclicality. But death death is baked into the system, even if it's microscopic. And, uh, And these were videos on a microscope. And so I'm just so curious to see how that conversation washes out.
1: I know. Like, I'm just curious to like hear his response for like, you know, like your avocados that you're eating. It's like, there's thousands of smaller animals that are dying in that process. So it's like, what is our, like, how do we equate a life? Like, are you equating a cow's life to be more valuable because it's larger? And I I just, I'm just very curious to get to the root, to unpack a lot of that stuff. And I'm also very curious to get his perspective on like these fake plant commodities like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods and Oatly and all these companies that are technically vegan and greenwashing their products but they're terrible for the environment just like I'm sure he's probably very excited to talk to me about you know our our thought process on big four packers and big chicken and all the stuff that we were talking about before so but I think that we'll end up having more commonality than he, than we might realize that we have. But so far the conversation, the DMS have been super amicable. He seems like a very good guy. So we're excited to have him on.
0: Cool. I love that. I can't wait. If that happens before this podcast comes out, I'll make sure that that's in the show notes too. I have this, this, last thread that I really want to dive into with you, which is coming back to this idea of connecting with local food systems as somebody that didn't have a necessarily a background in agriculture and Mm -hmm. coming to this space of gratitude of that, where you are thanking the animal before that meal. This has been, my husband, I write the names of the animal that we've processed on their package. And so when I pull it out of the freezer, I know, I know who to thank. And I think that as I look at your journey into this, you know, I've been in regenerative ag for 10 years and I love the way that both you and Harrison have entered this space and just gone full in. And so what has been that process to reconnect with landscapes to move out of New York city to get connected with your
1: food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's been a, it's been a two, it's been kind of like a two part journey. And the first part was what we had touched on earlier, which was my story of like, just correcting my diet of like getting my macros in line, eating, eating the right foods. And then you start to get healthier and you feel amazing. And then you kind of go down phase two, which is like, you start to ask yourself questions about like, okay, well, where is my food actually coming from? So that's really what happened for me as I started going down the carnivore rabbit hole and then I started seeing that there was this big movement within the space to talk about like the intentionality and in sourcing your stuff directly from local farmers and a lot of the studies that they were doing on the micronutrient quality of the animal, the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio of the animal that you're eating, it's far superior when you're sourcing from farms, preferably regenerative farms where the soil health is really good. They're using the right practices. The animal's raised the right way. So it's not stressed out and you're not getting that gaminess in the quality of the meat. They're not releasing adrenaline and things like that. And so like we like you know, we've gone on that journey just like everyone else. Like we're still infants in this stuff, just like you were probably your first year of being in the regenerative space. But I've noticed such a difference in the way that I felt like, like I, we, um, we just took on one of our first podcast sponsors, which is this company called Holy Cow Beef. And they're a small family ranch out in Lubbock, Texas, which is West Texas. They were former financial advisors. The husband Weldon had a stroke they started going down the Weston A. Price rabbit hole, changed their diet to a lot of really good quality animal products, beef, raw dairy, uh, fruits, vegetables, things like that, and completely reversed their health. And so their story is, is amazingly powerful. And we wanted to work with them because we just were so strongly in alignment with their principles. So they send us a bunch of their meat every single month. This, they just started doing this. And uh, last week was the first time that I really got to, I had a ribeye from them And I could literally just, and I don't know if it was a placebo, but I could just taste the difference so vividly in the beef that I was buying from them versus like back in the day when I would go to Costco or the supermarket. And it sounds cheesy, but it's like the animal, it's like, they're basically like raising the animal with love and they're invested. Like they know who I am. They want to provide me and my, you know, they want to provide me with the best quality animal protein possible just so that way I can give them my dollar and we can basically build this entirely new supply chain going away from like these big four packers that undercharge the rancher and they overcharge you as the consumer and they're you know destructive to the quad of the animal and our soil health and like there's a whole host of things that we can dig into so you know I think it's it's just been so amazing realizing that there's an entirely new system that's out there and I remember when I first learned about it the concept of connecting with a rancher was so bizarre to me because at that point I'm like, no, you just go to the grocery store and there's always ribeyes there. And I pick it up and it's in this little like plastic container in this package. Like you don't think about the energy and the labor that goes into that kill and and being able to provide that steak for you. And I think that's been the most amazing thing with connecting with these ranchers and building relationships and getting to have them on the podcast is learning step by step All the detail, how long their days are, everything that goes into this process of like wanting to provide you with the best quality food possible. And I was thinking about this the other day. It's like we're wired to think that like energy in relationship to our food is a bad thing. And like big food thinks the less energy, the easier we can create the products for you, the better. Where it's really the opposite. It's like, an indication of how healthy your food is, is how much energy and effort was used to actually create the food. So that's just been something I've been mulling, mulling a lot into. Um, But it's just, it's just been so enjoyable. And there's this, when you meet people in this community, there's just, it's something so much greater than yourself. And it's so pure. And, you know, you think about how important having really good quality food is. And, you know, we want to just promote the message as loudly and as far as we can to as many people as possible
0: that's so beautiful. I mean, you just, you just really summed it up and something that you said, the amount of energy that goes into our food is part of what makes it, it gives it density, uh, this sort of literal density. And I, I just want to highlight that because I think that's stunning. Have you read Wes Jackson's sunshine study? I have to bring this up right
1: now. No. Should I read that? Yeah.
0: So there was a study done at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. I'll link to it too, called the sunshine study. And do you know who Wes Jackson is?
1: I do not actually.
0: He's a biogeneticist that crossbred a perennial cereal grain. But he was friends with Wendell Berry and has written some really beautiful books. But at the Land Institute, they looked at how much energy, and, and this is a different view of what you just said, but how much energy goes into farming when you take it all the way down to the studs, looking at how much energy it took to mine the components of the steel that went into the tractor, that went into pulling up fossil fuels out of the earth to power the diesel in that tractor all the way to like what it means maybe to extrapolate it to a steel lobbyist Mm -hmm. and how much energy was spent there. And so I think looking at energy accounting of our food, right, and that's one lens, kind of looking at the industrial energy accounting of our food. But this is the, the human energy and the sun energy and the soil food web energy that is going into our food. And I think that that is such an incredible view of things. I I know that we haul five gallon buckets of feed about a quarter mile out just with our bodies most days to feed the pigs. And I think a lot about what that means going into the meat.
1: Totally. Totally. And I think that it's like Harrison and I feel this responsibility where it's like, you know, we're, we're guys that we come from a corporate background. I'm from New Jersey. He was from Virginia, like didn't grow up on a farm. Don't know, really don't know much about it, but it's like, we feel this responsibility to give regenerative farmers like you and so many other amazing people, a platform to share that message. So people are intentionally choosing to purchase their products from you because of the, the effort the everything that you go through to raise the animal the right way. So you can nourish your customer when it would be so easy to just like sell out and do things cheaper. Like that message just needs to be told. And we're very transparent about that as it's like, we don't want to be like armchair quarterbacks. We want to go into the regenerative space ourselves. Like we want to be able to roll up our sleeves and really understand everything that goes into making our food. But right now, the most impactful thing we can do is take our passion and have amazing conversations and just push and share the message and far and as wide as possible to get that out there so people realize, oh wow, like there is a massive difference of me buying my beef from Walmart versus buying my beef from Joel Saladin at Polyface Farms. And you know, not only am I incentivizing the right system, I'm actually getting meat that's way more nutritious, that's way more nutrient dense. Like the studies just show that. So it's um, that's, that's really what motivates us. It's really exciting.
0: I love that. And watching your guys' meteoric rise in this space has just been such an honor. And I think everyone will pick up on this in the podcast, just what a beautiful storyteller you are and how much you bring to illuminating some of the the hard to understand pieces in a very distilled and simple format. And I'm, I'm really grateful to you for doing that in the community.
1: Thank you. Well, it takes a great host to be able to pull out the story from the guests. So (laughs) So I appreciate you having me on. And like we were saying, it's like the relationships that are formed in this space are so amazing. And I would just encourage everyone. It's like, I think you could probably hear when I talk, it's, you know, just very passionate about this stuff and people are drawn towards passion. And it's like, we live in the best day and age possible where you can find something that you're passionate about take the camera on your laptop and record something over Zoom and put your content out or literally write a thread on Twitter that's informative about something you care about and people will pick up on it. Like That's literally how this whole thing started is that... Harrison Harrison is more into like this he was the one that first got into the soil health and the regenerative practices. I was into it just from firstly from a carnivore perspective. So he started blogging on Substack with this bitcoiner. He started writing for the guy anonymously for free and um started putting his content out there. People liked it and then I started writing Twitter threads on how I healed myself and that's kind of blossomed into this thing now where like just to show how much progress you can make. I think we have like a hundred thousand Twitter followers and our podcast just cracked the top fifty for nutrition. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm literally just saying that like that's the opportunity that's out there when you lean into the stuff that you're really passionate about and use the internet as a way to bring that passion out so other people can tap into that and learn from it. Like you just you just don't know what it can turn into, but you have to start and you just have to stay consistent with it and believe in it.
0: I love that. What's next for the Meat Mafia? What's coming up?
1: It's a good question. I I really think the, well, what's next is I'm physically moving from San Diego to Austin on November 1st, which we were chatting about before we hit record. That's where Harrison is based. And just from the perspective of wanting to grow our podcast, obviously Texas is the beef capital of the country, a lot of farmers out there and just like, just putting ourselves in like the same physical location to grow this thing we want to grow it to. That's like the most immediate thing that we're excited about and we really want to invest in the the quality of the podcasting trying to transition to more in-person episodes trying to get that production team together make the experience a lot better for our listener so we're working on that and then we're also working on a, a regenerative cooking tallow product a beef tallow product that we're um, we're hoping to launch 11/1 the day that I moved to Austin that's the that's like the soft launch for that. So, you know, we wanna create products and put the educational component to it. Like start with something like tallow, which is like the base layer of how you cook is starting with a really good quality fat. And then maybe moving to things like steak bars with organ meats or like salts and just, just things that could be so beneficial to your diet and kind of help fuel people, give people the food that can actually help them get metabolically healthier. That's something that we're really excited about. And even something like we want to do, we were talking to you about this a couple months ago, uh, like a health renaissance festival in Austin and get a bunch of really cool experts in, farming, butchering, nutritionists, strength coaches, and just try and put on this awesome summit together where we can just bring in a bunch of experts and bring in a great community and have people walk away with a great experience where they have just a ton of knowledge gained. So for us, it's just like, what can we keep doing to have the best impact possible? And it's, it's going to be a bunch of different things. And it's kind of like, we always, Harrison, I always joke that we, it's like just organized chaos, just throwing stuff mm-hmm. at a wall, mm-hmm. but that's also what makes it exciting too.
0: Yeah. And your, your zest and your passion for doing this really comes through and it's, it's contagious also, which I deeply appreciate. I have one last question that I ask everybody, which is what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork could be for yourself for health could be in the greater scheme of things, whatever it is.
1: That's such a good question. I think that when I think about laying the groundwork, I think about the, what we were talking about before of, I think everyone knows the things that they should be doing every single day to make themselves feel as good as possible. So what that looks like for me is, so I quit my nine to five and now I'm doing this full Meet mafia full time. So I went from a sales job, which is very like push, push, push to now it's no, you need to create content. You need to take time to write. You have to record podcasts. You need to review those episodes. You need to be reading a lot more To boost your knowledge. It's a, it's a different mindset and it's more free time than I've ever had. And I started realizing that the lack of structure was amazing, but I also wasn't the last couple of weeks. I haven't been executing to the, my full potential. So literally yesterday I made a list of like all the things that I need to be doing that I know will get me to the end point that I want to be at at the end of the year. So it's, um, there's 97 days left in the year, so what I did was I made a list of all the things that I need to be doing, and then every day for the rest of the year, I'm going do to those, do those things for 97 days straight until we hit Jan 1 of 2023. And so that for me is laying the groundwork that's going to make me the best, most productive form of myself so I can then go out and actually help other people be the best forms of themselves. Because if I can't lay the groundwork for myself, how the hell am I supposed to lay the groundwork for other people? And it's very basic stuff. Like I think the list for me is it's like intentional exercise thirty minutes a day, ten minutes of reading on an educational book that's going to help me learn more about nutrition and food, ten minutes of like Bible study from Proverbs. No phone first thing in the morning. No phone before I go to bed at night. Write an hour a day. Like it's very basic things that just compounded over time will make will help me just be a better version of myself. So I think it's just a good exercise to think about like what are those things for you, and then literally lay the groundwork and stay consistent and maybe it's in the form of a challenge or maybe you're just someone that can apply those things to your life immediately. I'm someone that I just like I have the OCD where I'm like I need the challenge. I need to like cross it off on a calendar every single day. So so yeah.
0: Thank you. I think that's fantastic and I it really inspires me and I think as I look at the next 97 days of this year, I want to I've taken a lot of inspiration and motivation just from your words within this podcast and so thank you. Absolutely. Um, Where can people find you?
1: Yeah. So Twitter is probably the best space. So Harrison and I, our brand is the meat mafia, but we have separate like anonymous Twitter accounts. So my Twitter handle is at Mr. Salazzo which is m r s o l l o z z o and then our instagram is the meat mafia podcast which is obviously it's the, it's the name of our show it's available on every major app and then we also have a substack where we are writing a new article every single day through the end of the year so
0: you guys are crazy you guys are but it's, are amazing. Know, but, it's like,
1: but it's but it's like that hour of writing it like these substack articles they're not long it takes like 30 minutes to write But the point is like, there's so many good little nuggets that you can drop every single day. And it's like, build, it's like making that identity shift of like, I am a writer, I'm a writer, I'm a creator. Like, and it's only going to happen if we just keep, if we keep writing. And we also don't have jobs or nine to fives anymore. So it's like, we got to crank this thing up. So yeah, it's good pressure. Thank
0: you. Thank you for sharing just all of this powerful information and the way that you communicate it is so needed in this space. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for hosting me. And I hope we get to do this again soon too, in person. Oh, we will. Yeah. Oh, we will.
0: Oh, we will. It's going to happen. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Kate.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.